pleasure to come and uh, spend a day with you and to meet some old muckers. And uh, I, I've really, really enjoyed my time here. And thank you so much uh, for having me. And um, I'm amazed you came back. <laughs> this is the graveyard slot. Hopefully, we're going to have a bit of resurrection. But um, great to see you. And uh, next to where I'm sat over there, I love these cards. Did you bring them from your church or print them special? I, I've got the one next to me was saves the best till last. The best is yet to come. Yeah, I hope that's true about this talk, <laughs> but it's certainly true eschatologically because glory awaits us in the future that's coming to meet us. But for you in your life and uh, your ministry, and I hope the best is yet to come. You know, God meets us from the future coming towards us in love with arms laden with good things and he wants to bless you and uh, this evening I want us to think about the work of the spirit in our lives and receiving more of that God's always got more to give us and I loved hearing earlier on I I mean it slightly intimidated me but hearing that you went river swimming is that right well, a dip is different than a swim, yeah. but a dip, I mean, still, that's hardcore, and I'm impressed. And this evening, I, I, I want to talk about swimming. I mean, you can dip if you want, but <laughs> dipping and paddling and then swimming. If you've got a Bible, let's turn to Psalm 46. I'm going to dot around and, and uh, pick out a few passages from Scripture uh, this evening, and then we're going to worship, then we're going to enjoy the Lord's presence, and then we're going to have some ministry. But uh, Psalm 46, and I start at verse 1. God is, I'm reading from the RSV, by the way, in case you wonder what translation, really sound version. <laughs> some would say it's not, you know, but uh, I just like it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. If you're going through it, he is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though mountains shake in the heart of the sea. A lot of shaking in our world at the moment. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult, Verse 4, let's underline this. There is a river, there really is a river, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her right early. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. How about that? Shall we pray and then we'll tuck in? Lord, thank you that you saw us from afar and you loved us. And dying, you gave us life. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who's for us. You save the best till last. And Lord, you know where we're at. You know all our needs. And we pray, Lord, 
this evening, you'll meet us where we're at. And you'll meet some of them needs, Lord. And we bless you, Lord. Who's ever heard of a God who loves sinners? We thank you that you love us. Amen. In the classic of English philosophy, Wind in the Willows, which is a philosophy book, it begins like this. So this is a river, asks Mole. The river, corrected the rat. And you really live by the river? What a jolly life. By it and with it and on it and in it, said the rat. It's brother and sister to me and aunts and company and food and drink and washing. It's my world and I don't want any other. What it hasn't got is not worth knowing or having, and what it doesn't know is not worth knowing. Boy, the times we had together. That's more than a dip. <laughs> but your dip was more than me going around the shops. <laughs> the psalmist in Psalm 46, 4 says, There is a river. There really is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And like rat on his river, as those who are offered this indulgence in the river of God, they're called to live by it and with it and beside it and on it and in it. I don't want to talk for long tonight, but we're talking river. And the first thing I want to say is this, that God's people are called to be river people, river people. The river is to frame our lives and our ministry. You know, the Bible almost begins with the head of a river in Eden, and it ends with the river in paradise. And all the way through scriptures, you can often find uh, as a kind of metaphor associated with the economy and activity of God, the river. The river speaks of God and his goodness and his life and his transformation and his cleansing. Rivers are so important. Do a study on rivers in the Bible. In Ezekiel 47, famous passage, you'll know it, we see this extraordinary river that's flowing from the temple out into the desert. It's flowing from the place and the presence of God. In fact, it's flowing from the altar of God, from the right side of the altar. And it's flowing out. And wherever the river goes, there is life. The river's not flowing up to, as it were, Jerusalem, up to the temple on pilgrimage. The pilgrimage is always God going out, bringing transformation. That's what we should be about. It's what the church is about, what the kingdom is about. It's what the incarnation is about. God going out of himself, as it were, bringing that river. And that river in Ezekiel 47, you'll know it, is a river of revelation and provision and satisfaction. It's the mission of God. And it's flowing out. We read about the transformation it brings to marshes and deserts and 
things spring into life and fish in the sea and there's industry and there's economy. It's holistic and it's absolutely epic. That's a religious word. Epic is our word. It's a kingdom word. And the prophet is called to get in the river and to follow the river where it goes. And you'll know that he gets in and he's paddling and he's dipping and uh, up to his ankles and then up to his knees and up to his waist and then over his head. God invites us into that river. C.S. Lewis, um, is it in the last battle? Where um, there's a waterfall and uh, is it Reaper Cheap on the side? I've forgotten. The, I've forgotten. I'm trying to find it in my head. I'm tired. But he says you, you've got to go further up and further in. Further up and further in. And that's what Ezekiel's been invited to do. Further up and further in. And that's what we're invited to do. That's what God is always inviting. He's not saying go away. He's saying come closer. Come further up and further in to this river. What is the river? Well, some consider that river in 47 a literal river that will flow literally from a literal Jerusalem and you know, reconstitute in a literal temple. I don't know. Time will tell. But generally speaking, it's a kind of figurative river. St. Ambrose said that the river is the Holy Spirit. Certainly it's the work of the Spirit, the outgoing God. Uh, Puritan John Owen said it was the preaching of the gospel. It's the mission of the church, which of course is the outgoing God and the work of the Spirit. My favorite um, uh, interpretation is that the river represents the royal graces. How about that? I like that. I can't remember who said it was a Puritan. The royal graces graces. We just went to Windsor. I've never seen Windsor from the angle. We've been a few times, but the way that we came in, and from the castle, there's that long sort of drop, like pathway, long drag. I don't, I, I don't know what it is. Is it like a royal mile or something? Is it, what's it called? Long walk. It looked like a long walk, <laughs> and uh, I could see a lot of people long walking, but and they were all going up towards the castle. But this long walk. But just imagine this river flowing out of the king of kings' heart. Out of glory and eternity and heaven. And just coming. This majestic and beautiful and life-transforming river. And we're invited to get in the river. And not just paddle. You know, I've been around charismatic stuff since I got saved over... 37 years ago, and I've often heard prophecies about, you know, don't stand on the edge with the spray, you know, the Lord invites you in. I've always thought it was a bit cheesy, do you know? but it's true. I had to go and write a book on it in the end in repentance. It's true. Get in the river, the royal graces of God. Get in the river and participate in the mission of God, the advance of his kingdom and goodness bringing change. I love what Isaiah says about the river in 43:19. He says, look, I'm doing something new. God is doing this new thing, and he's bringing a river in the desert, a river that changes. He says, do you not perceive it? See how it's bubbling up. Something new. You know, our world's been through just a 
hell of a period in these last few years, hasn't it? I mean, all hell seemed to have broken loose. Just wars and rumors of wars. Trouble here, trouble there. But there is still a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And God, God hadn't gone walkabout. God's not indifferent to this world that he made and loved. He's not absent. He's present and he wants that river to flow. Going out of himself, through his church, into the world. I love what Job says. He talks about a river of honey and cream. Isn't that lovely? Ooh, I could eat some of that now. A river of honey and cream. He's just sort of working hard to find words to describe something of the beauty and glory and wonder, richness of God's river. Again, the psalmist says it's a river of delights. We used to sing a song like that back in the early 80s, I don't know what that movement was about, but, <laughs> but river. We're a river people. I know I'm repeating myself. I'm intending to. The American novelist Mark Helpin says, a good river is nature's life work in song. And there's this sense where God sings over us with that river. I, was, I mentioned I was in Ireland a week ago. I was with all these fighting, tough Ulster men. And Seamus Heaney says that the Ulster, I, was, I did my postgrad research with an Ulster man. And um, he says that the Ulster accent, Seamus Heaney, the poet, says, is like, um, it's like uh, um, rivets going through metal. You know. And, uh, but then I was with, the bishop was from Donegal, and I was listening to his lovely accent. It was like, it was like a river. It was beautiful. I love, I'm, I'm deaf. I wear hearing aids in both ears. I haven't got them today. So if you've been talking to me and you thought I ignored you, I, I wasn't doing it intentionally. I didn't hear you. But it's like this beautiful river. But God is a God who sends this river singing over us. I love Ulsterman, but it's not a hard, edgy river. It's beautiful and soft and welcoming. That's the first thing that I wanted to say. God's people are river people. River people. Secondly, Jesus is the headwater. And he's the source of that river. All of those Old Testament images, and we could have marshaled so many of them. And of course, a river really matters if you're living in the ancient Near East, if you're in the Middle East where it's baking and uh, you're thirsty. That's why it's such a special and important and prevalent metaphor. But all of these Old Testament images of the river are like spokes that lead us to Jesus. And he's the source of the river. He's the one who bestows the river. You might like to turn to John 4. And uh, you know these passages really well. But here in John 4, we read about this extraordinary encounter that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman who has something of an eye-raising past. I love the fact that the Lord goes to those who may have issues or history or a past or whatever. Gathering demoniacs. <laughs> this dear lady... And he engages her in conversation. I just love that. He goes to her. He sends off the disciples off to get some nosh. And he talks to her. And as she draws up the water from the well, he asks for a drink. 
And she's shocked. I mean, this just doesn't happen. A Jewish person, person doesn't talk to a Samaritan person. Samaritans were regarded as like half-Jews, which was like worse than Gentiles, because they'd intermarried racially. And they were rejected and regarded as demonized by Jews. And she's a woman. You know, there was, a, there was a group of rabbis called the Bruised and Bleeding. They'd cover themselves in the time of Christ in a veil. And they were called Bruised and Bleeding because they kept walking into walls. Whack! And they did it because they didn't want to look at a woman. True, that is true. But here's Jesus. He's talking to this woman. And he's asking her for something from her. And she's taken aback. This just was unexpected. But having accepted a drink of water, Jesus then says that he wants to give her something to drink. And that if she drinks what he gives, she will never thirst again. And it'll well up to eternal life. I love her answer. She says, yes, I'll have it. Thanks very much. She's been thirsty all her life. And he's the only man who hadn't taken something from her, but offered to give her something. And she's tried satiating her Life in so many different ways, but only one man can do it, and that's Jesus. And he offers her salvation. He offers her himself. He offers her the gift of the Holy Spirit, of this river of life. In John 7, John picks up on this again, and uh, it's a powerful and prophetic context. On each of the seven days of the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, a priest would draw water in a golden flagon from the pool of Siloam. Anyone been there? I mean, it's epic. Come on, guys. If you get the chance, go there so that you can understand something of our theology rooted in space and geography and mud and brick. It's really important if you get the chance. A wonderful thing. Unforgettable. I've been many times. Anyway, he'd get this flagon of water from the pool of Siloam and there'd be a big procession they'd go back up to the temple and then he would pour it out at the base of the altar and this act of pouring out the water was both a kind of thanksgiving that God had provided rain but it was also a, a, a prophetic gesture and the rabbi said that that it symbolized the fact that one day God would pour out the Holy Spirit on us in the Talmud. It says it's a prophetic act of God sending his spirit. And then we read in John 7 that on the last and greatest day of the feast. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest. And there on the last and greatest day of the feast, as the water is poured out and the crowds watch and people are you know, pregnant with expectation and prophetic anticipation and hope, pouring it out, saying their prayers, all giddy and religious, the feast of booths, up gets Jesus. And people look at him. They're not looking at the priest pouring out. And he says, verse 38 of chapter 7. What a fantastic verse. He says, if anyone is thirsty, then let him come to me and drink. I mean, that is rank blasphemy if you're not God. Let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, I mean, Jesus, what? This isn't nice Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. And this is Jesus, the Son of God, revealing something of his glory. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams 
of living water from Isaiah will flow out of them. And he was speaking about the spirit who they were yet to receive, those who believed. That river comes from Jesus. And he's like that rock that Moses struck in the wilderness and the water gushed forth. John tells us that when they struck Christ, the rock, at the cross, out of his side flowed blood and water. Those two beautiful rivers, the one that cleanses and the one that satisfies, the one that cleanses and purifies, and the one that vivifies our life. Out of his side flows blood and water. You know, apologists for years were into, oh, well, this is a kind of sign that the blood had separated and he was clearly dead on the cross. It may well have been, but John was making a different point, I think. The river, the river flows from Jesus. And we're river people. We're to be river people. And we need both those rivers flowing into our lives. When I was a teenager, I spent a week tracing the great river Dart that opens up to the sea, but I traced it to its starting point in a sort of boggy marsh on the top of a, of a tor on Dartmoor. Just this little trickle there, a little bit down. That's where it began. And it goes from there and becomes this great river out into the sea. And we've got to go to the source. And the source is Jesus. He's the one who gives the river. The world's full of thirsty people. And they're drinking in the wrong place, many of them. They're partying in the wrong place. They're swimming in the wrong river. There's just so many. You know, if it's not the one that Christ has sent, it's often full of acid and detritus. It's not going to satisfy. There is a river. And Jesus is the headwater of the river. And then thirdly, the devil loves a desert. The devil wants our life to be like living in an estuary with the tide out. Just stuck in the mud. I mean, that's what he'd like. You know, going back to Psalm 46, you know, this was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And... Uh, when he went to the Diet of Worms, that wasn't what he ate. That was a place where he was tried. The Diet of Worms, he, worms, he, um, he said, come, let us sing Psalm 46. And often when he was depressed, he was often depressed. He was troubled with intrusive thoughts, unfectungen, he called them. He just would say, we're going to sing Psalm 46. This really meant a lot to him. It became the battle cry of the Reformation. I fear that he put the emphasis in the wrong place, if I may say so. Forgive me if you're a Lutheran person, first and foremost, after the Lord. But I, I think he became a kind of fortress theologian. You know, mountains tremble and God is our refuge and our strength and, and so on. I think his theology became a bit too fortress-like. Um, I was preaching in Germany before lockdown. And I said, I'm going to preach on Psalm 46. And I had a, a, an interpreter. I said, Psalm 46. And then I said, I'm going to talk about the river. Come on, let's get going. And th this really respectful theologian who was doing the interpreter came up to me and said, there is no river. I said, what are you on about? Of course there's a river. There is a river. 
Verse 4, Psalm 46. There is a river. He said, there isn't a river. I said, there is. He's got his Bible. I've got mine. We're doing a Bible thing. There is a river. He said, not in Luther's translation, there isn't. Anyway, I was shocked. They want the river. He said, all we've got is little springs. I said, no, 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 there is a river. Anyway, it messed up the sermon a bit because I was getting a bit worried. I got back to, to Oxford, and in Oxford, we've got a few smarties. And I went and, I, I went and asked for a meeting with the Regis Professor of History called Professor Lyndall Roper. She's absolutely brilliant. She wrote a great book on Luther, one of the great world Luther scholars. And I said, Lyndall, dear professor, is there a river or not? I mean, there is one in the Hebrew. So how come Luther didn't have a Hebrew, uh, didn't have a river? And she said, she came back and we had a nice coffee. And she said, in his Psalter of 1524, Luther has a strom. He's got a river. He's got a flow. He's got that tide, that current. But in 1534, he took the river out. And all he had was little streams. Now, what a weird thing is that? I actually think Luther went really off the rails in the end. And his treatment of in the peasants war and of the treatment of the Jews and things he published was dreadful I think he lost the plot he lost the river you can do your own research on that if you want but he lost the river and often the church loses its river often the church gets separated from the river Often the church becomes a bit of an oxbow lake. Do you remember that when we did your O-level in geography? I think a lot of churches are oxbow lakes. They're somehow separated from the river, all silted up. And the water's just a bit rank. It's not the flow of the river of God. The devil loves a desert. He loves the church to be an oxbow lake. He loves to separate us from the flow and the current of the stream of God, the life of God. He don't want us in the river. He's happy for us to be in a fortress, but not in the river. And we need to get out of the fortress and get into the river, or at least get that river pumping through the fortress. In a classic French film, Jean de Florette. Anyone seen the film? Anyone read the book? Anyone got the T-shirt? <laughs> I'd love a T-shirt of, of that. But it's a wonderful film. I've watched it so many times. Anyway, it's a story about some city slicker who inherits a farm. Uh, I think da down, uh, down in France. Um, anyway, down, hot. And uh, Mar <laughs> I think Marseille, but it's not. It's further up than that. And um, he inherits this farm, and he thinks, well, I can make a real go of this. And he was a smarty pants, and he thought, I know what we'll do. The way to make a good living is rabbits, because rabbits breed, and you've got meat, and you've got fur. You don't have to do much. They breed by nature. Uh, all you've got to do is keep them and catch them. So he puts in all this fencing going down deep, and he buys all these breeding rabbits. You'll know the story. And then uh, the only crops he has are lettuce in order to feed the rabbits. And boom, he puts them together. Off they go. Rabbits are everywhere. They're breeding, and, they're, and he's making money. It's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. And then they go into a heat wave. And then the cistern begins to run dry. There's no rain. 
the water table drops. There's no water for the crops. With the crops dying, you can't feed the rabbits. With the rabbits not being fed, they're not breeding, they're dying. His plan's going to pot. And in the movie, you see him uh, with his donkey, all laden with pots and pans and milk churns. And every morning before dawn, he goes up over the mountain and down into the next valley because there, there's a well and he can bring back a little bit of water. And he gets back after dusk and he pours the water into his cistern. But it's never enough. It's never enough. And the crops shrivel. And the rabbits all die. And in his desperation, he goes, he goes occult. And uh, he goes into all of that dousing stuff to try and find a river. Because he's told there is a river somewhere. He doesn't know where it is. He's looking for the river. He thinks he's found it. He puts some TNT in there. He lights it up. It blows up. A stone goes up, up in the air. Down it comes. Whack! Down on the floor. And he's dead in an hour. It's a classic film. <laughs> but <laughs> you've got to watch part two, because part two, it comes good. But he's lying on his deathbed, and he says, I failed to see that the water was the one problem. I can have all this industry and all this activity and all this ministry, these projects. And, but if I haven't got water, I haven't got out. I haven't got anything. And the church, it seems to me, so often is trying hard, putting the fences and the rabbits and the lettuce. And we need the water. We need the river. But here's the tragedy. You've got to watch film number two, Manon de Source. There was a river all along. There was a river all along that ran all the way under his land. But wicked people had blocked the river up in order to put him out of business. The devil doesn't want the river flowing through your life, through your family's life, and through the church life. He wants us to do church on our own, in our own strength, in our own power, with our own imagination. Our ideas, our effort, our industry, our activity, which ultimately will prove fruitless. We need the river of God if we're to have life. The devil wants to block up the river so that we die of thirst. And he's good at it. He's got theologians coming up with theology that there isn't a river. There is a river. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. And that river flows in lots of different ways. You know, it's not just one size fits all kind of river. Lots of different rivers, lots of different tributaries coming in lots of different ways. But it's God that we need. It's his river by his spirit. And then finally, uh, let me say that I mean, we need the river, don't we? Come on. I mean, you know it's true. Christianity is following Jesus in our own strength. We were never meant to. We just can't do it. Years ago, when my boys were little, they're now grown-up men. But I remember years ago, when they were small, we went on holiday to France. And um, I, I can't remember the year, but about 2004... Anyway, it was a blisteringly hot year. It actually melted my camera. 
and uh, it was that hot. And um, my son jumped off a, a slide. And rather than going down the slide, he thought he'd do it his way. He just jumped off the top, bust his ankle. It was a great holiday. And um, anyway, one morning I'm lying in, in, in the room, and before I, the day begins, I'm talking to the Lord. And I felt the Lord speak to me. He doesn't often talk to me like this. I'm not very good at charismatic stuff. He talks to me in the Bible. But I felt the Lord talk to me and say, I'm going to talk to you today. I said, oh, so you're talking to me about talking to me. Why don't you just talk to me? But he said, I'm going to talk to you today. I said, oh, great. Anyway, I wrote it down in my journal. I actually found that journal um, not that long ago. And there it was. So the Lord said he's going to talk to me today. What a strange thing that is. Uh, anyway, I went into the day. We were staying in uh, Normandy. And um, we went to Mont Saint-Michel. My, my lab had a bust ankle. I had to carry him on my shoulders. And he was growing up then, all the way up Mont Saint-Michel with my boy, you know. And um, I thought, what, what is the Lord speaking to me through my son and my temper and my being annoyed at him? And what, what is the Lord saying? And I'm looking for a sign. I see speaking, nothing. Anyway, we got back home, we drove back home that evening. And, it's sort of late afternoon, early evening. I went to lie on the bed to recover from carrying my boy up that hill. Up and up and up. And I'm lying on the bed. I said, Lord, I thought you were going to talk to me today. Did I just, you know, I was, but you haven't. And then all of a sudden, my wife shouts. And often the Lord talks to me through my wife. Um, and she said, Simon, come quick. There's a fish in trouble. I thought, all right. And the thing was, in our, at the bottom of the garden of this, where we were staying, this sheet, was this amazing pond. It was a pond joint that a river flowed into it. And, um, and there were these huge carp in there, giant carp, great big things, probably 20 years old, great big tummy, absolutely fantastic things. Anyway, the water table had dropped. And... Uh, a fish, obviously, in the cool of the day, had swum up to the sort of shady end and got stuck in the mud. And there was this great, big, beautiful koi carp, reds and silver and black and, and massive, just looking at me. And in real trouble, it was going to die. My boys were on the edge. Sort it out, Dad. Sort it, Dad. And Dad, to the rescue, I said to one side, I said, go and get the watering can, because there'd been water in the carnations and you get the watering can you go and get the dustbin lid and they ran off and the boys came back dustbin lid watering can I said right follow me and then we went picked up this great big thing and put it on the on the dustbin in my with the other boy and then I walked out down uh, where it was deep end lowered it in and after a while it sort of came together a bit like that and and off it went saying thanks very much completely brilliant my boys cheered. The missus smiled at me. It was a beautiful moment. And then when I got out, and as literally as I got out and I'm walking away again, the Lord talks to me. Getting out the mud, going out the loo, that's when he tends to talk to me. And he said, the church is like that carp. And she's lived long and become noble and she's beautiful and proud and got her scars from life. But she's come into the shallows. She left the deep end. And the water table's gone down. And she's suffocating. And she's dying. 
and the odd, the odd sprinkling can of water, the odd little renewal blessing, the odd retreat, the odd conference, that ain't going to cut the mustard. What she needs is to be put back in the deep end. And the great tragedy of that holiday was that every evening after that, we would go and we'd see dead carp at the end of the pond. Not my big, noble, black, and orange, and silver one. He'd learned his lesson. He's going to stay in the deep. There were other ones, different color. I knew they weren't my one. But there they were, and it was too late for them. They'd left the river. They'd got stuck in the mud, and they'd died. That revelation was given to me, well, a long time ago now. But it's just truer now than it ever was when I got it. When I got it, I thought things seemed really exciting in the church. Big conferences, thousands of the new wine, churches on the advance. But look at the church now. Back then we thought, look at her go. Now look, now we think, oh dear, we're in a bit of trouble. A lot of ministers are in trouble. People we know left the ministry, burnt out, blown out, broken down, can't take any more. People just leaving the church. Why? They're just bored. Why go to church if there's nothing to drink? Why go to church if they're in a, a river? And following COVID, and so many have just become dry. And uh, the church is not what it should be. And it's not what it could be. And what we need is the river. The greatest need of the church today is that the church has more of God in her. And that she, Karl Barth said, you've got to begin again at the beginning. The ever new start is the only possible way. And he knew, you've got to begin at the beginning. We come back to the cross. We come back to that flow of blood and water that cleanses us and, and sanctifies us and transforms us and the river that vivifies us and satisfies us and gives us life. We are called to be river people. And there is a, a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand. We're going to worship. Sorry, I went on a lot longer than I intended, and I'm sorry. Let's stand. Let's worship. And uh, we'll take it from there.